What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your Friday weekly wildfire update. We also have the Wednesday show on our Substack, thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. That shows out every Wednesday. Also, all the workouts, all of the articles, the stories that I put out, recipes, and other news items can all be found on our Substack. Everything we do is supported through our subscriptions, through that, just $6. And if you would like to support the show and everything else we do, including firefighter donations and a whole bunch of giveaways, we give away pairs of boots, chainsaws to firefighters, that's all supported through that as well. So thank you to everybody out there. Thanks for listening. This week, the new Wildfire Commission met in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the way it looks, it's better late than never. They were supposed to meet seven months ago, and whatever the reasons behind it, that never took place, but that meeting has finally happened. We're going to be covering that meeting here on today's show. We're also going to talk about what's going on around the nation when it comes to wildfire in our second segment a full operational update of what's going on. A lot of the nation saw some cooler weather. Some precipitation came through. The Pacific Northwest, Montana, Idaho, and some other places, while Northern and Southern California saw some fire growth. We're also going to talk about a company that's trying to put together a wildfire intelligence gathering app basically, and they're looking to take that company public so it can be traded on the stock market, and we'll cover that in our last segment as well. That company has reached out to me. I did shoot them an email back. I haven't heard anything back from the recording of this podcast, and they didn't ask me to talk about this or provide any sort of financial motivation to talk about this, but it is a subject worth talking about. And if I do hear back from them, I'll pass along any extra information that they provide. And I'm kind of curious just to see a couple of things. One, what are they going to value themselves as? If you know me personally, you know that I have a little bit of an investment background if you've listened to my earlier podcast when it came to all of these mandates that came out and things like that, I had an opinion on those things because I have a pretty substantial background in pharmaceutical companies and drug trials and testing and results from those, reading through those, talking to CEOs of companies personally and discussing their drug trials with them. So I have a background in that kind of stuff. Not as extensive as my wildfire background, but I am sure that when it comes to those sorts of items, when it comes to being in communication with CEOs of large companies worth billions of dollars, discussing drug trials, discussing their publicly traded stock, stock options, and other things like that, I'm not afraid to say I probably have more experience than a lot of people out there on that. 
So I'm curious what they're going to value themselves as once they go public. It's interesting how they've decided to go public with this, and we'll cover that in in the later segment, but the way they're going about it is smart and a little bit different than how most companies go public lately or recently. And the founder of the company is a former Navy SEAL, so all of this stuff just kind of piqued my interest and I've been looking into this They've reached out to me in the past and just asked if they could use some of the footage that I had of wildfires. And once I saw this article come out that this is what they were planning on doing, I figured I would cover it. Now, if they reach out to me and they want any sort of partnership, I'd definitely be open to that because it looks like a quality company that they're running at this point in time, and I'm a very big fan of stock options and all sorts of other things like that. But all in all, with my background, I found this very, very interesting. But first, we are going to cover the Wildfire Mitigation Committee, or I should call them a commission, which they're actually called. And they met in Salt Lake City, Utah, for their inaugural meeting with all of their newly appointed representatives to discuss the items that were put forth in the infrastructure bill that by law they had to complete. Now, we covered this extensively and talked about all of the people who were appointed to this commission, oh, probably about two months ago, maybe two and a half months ago on one of the shows that we did. And one of the main things that I wanted to point out when we discussed this wildfire mitigation commission was that the mass majority of the individuals who took part and were appointed to this commission have zero wildfire background. There's a lot of nonprofit folks, private sector folks, people from FEMA, the Department of Agriculture, people from the Bureau of Land Management who don't have wildfire background, aerospace people, a lot of weather folks, and a few from sectors that, in my opinion, and in others' opinions, didn't really make sense of why they were on this commission at all. All that being said, that's where they are, and this is what it is. They do have alternates in case people fall out or things don't work that they can throw in there if needed. The three co-chairs of the commission are Tom Vilsack, and I'm sure you've heard that name before. He's the appointed Secretary of Agriculture. There's Deanne Criswell, who is the head of FEMA, and Deb Holland, I believe you pronounce that, H-A-A-L-A-N-D, who is the Secretary of Interior, who oversees the Bureau of Land Management. Of all of the individuals, only two have wildfire experience. That's Kelly Martin, and we've spoke about her in the past. She's the president of Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. And then also Nathan Miller, who is the wildland superintendent for the city of Santa Fe in New Mexico. Other than that, no one on the board has a voice that represents a wildland firefighter. When the law went into place and they went to build this whole thing out, and it was initially set up 
to where the commission was supposed to be formed back in November of 2021. That's when this whole thing came out in the infrastructure bill. They started piecing it together, and then there was kind of a mass exodus of people that they had brought on board, and then they revamped it, and then it's developed into the state of where it is right now. At that time, they were given multiple objectives with timelines. And like most things we discuss on this show, these timelines for some of these items have long since passed, and it's really coming as no shocker to anybody that these government organizations are failing to live up to what the law is. I understand there's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving pieces, of course. But just once, it would be nice to see someone stay on schedule, especially when it comes to pay raises, the new fire series, and everything that falls into those categories would be much appreciated if you could try to stay on schedule. But it's that old adage of, Government work. It gets done when it gets done. There's really no rush, so on and so forth. So this commission was tasked with the following. They were to develop recommendations to mitigate and manage wildland fires. Okay, that's a big task for a commission that only has two people with wildland fire experience on it. So 99, 98% of the commission has no wildfire experience, and they are ordered to develop recommendations to mitigate and manage wildfires. Just letting that sink in a little bit here, people. And it says that by February 13th, lucky 13, of 2023, they are to develop a report describing recommendations to prevent, mitigate, suppress, and manage wildland fires. Consider protection of human life, short- and long-term forest management goals, wildland-urban interface goals, utility corridors, rehab after wildland fires, streamlining environmental reviews, and recommendation for modernizing and expanding the use of technology, including satellite technology, remote sensing, unmanned aircraft systems, and other types of emergency technologies to prevent, mitigate, suppress, and manage wildland fires. A lot of that we're already seeing before this commission really takes it to task. And we've discussed this on Wednesday's show on the Substack. Idaho has really embraced drones. They are now monitoring wildfires in Idaho with just drones, keeping the boots off the fire, and they just put up a drone flight, and that's that. Tons of pros and cons to this happening. People in the industry, I'm sure, can pick those off the top of their head, such as less work for humans, more work for technology specialists, but really you're taking work from 40 maybe, let's call it two crews, two crews to monitor a a large fire, and I'm being conservative here, so that's 46 people, and you're replacing that with a battery-powered drone and maybe one or two operators. It saves the government a lot of money, but you're taking a lot of money out of the pockets of the boots on the ground. Again, pros and cons here. We're also seeing the use of these blimps around the country. They were used in Alaska this year. They've been used in Idaho this year. And these are massive, massive airships. Three football fields long. 
of an airship flying at 30,000 feet above these fires with the goal of these companies and the government to monitor the national forests for wildfire activity, scan the ground, take temperature readings, fuel density, all of these things with these drone and blimp platforms. I've had quite a few folks reach out to me and there's kind of a a double side here. Some folks are saying, hey, we know this is great technology, but I think we're embracing it at a point to where we're already thinking we can be too reliant on this. And then you end up with all sorts of problems at that point in time because things start to stack up. You get that Swiss cheese model of things going wrong, and then all of a sudden you have a massive problem. But at the same time, you can say, hey, if it's a super busy fire year, which this year it isn't, I know a lot of you listening who aren't firefighters will think, oh, it's it's really busy. You're constantly posting about fires and there's large fires in California and so on and so forth. Yeah, there are a lot of fires. It's fire season. But on average, when it comes to work that needs to get done and the intensity and severity of these fires... It's less than it has been in the past this year. I'm not saying that it's a downward trend that's just cratering. I'm just saying 2022 fire season hasn't been as active as others. But there's that argument of if it is a very busy fire season, we can monitor some of these wilderness fires with some unmanned aircraft and we can allocate resources other places. All things just to think about. The second thing this commission is tasked with is to report on aerial wildland firefighting equipment, strategies, and inventory. By March 30th of 2022, which, as you know, that date has passed, they were to prepare an inventory of surplus cargo and passenger aircraft that may be used for wildland firefighting purposes. Also, by June 28th of 2022, again, a deadline that has since passed, They were to develop an assessment of the number of aircraft needed to fight wildland fires through 2030. The report will include an assessment of the federal government's authorities to provide or sell surplus aircraft to federal, state, or local organizations to be used for wildland firefighting and identify additional authorities that are needed. The commission is directed to consider all private and public sector options for assessing necessary aircraft and aircraft parts, including procurement, contracting, retrofitting, and public-private partnerships. So all of that being said, there is a giant focus on two things with this commission. Aircraft and unmanned aircraft. This is another thing And all of you pilots out there and you retardant companies and everybody else that's listening, don't hate me for this because I know you see it as well, just on your bottom line, the amount of maintenance and aircraft you have out there. The willingness to use and the amount of use of aircraft on wildland fires is increasing. The amount of retardant that's being used on wildland fires seems to be increasing as well. If you just look at the numbers from the last five years that they put out, there's a five-year trend 
of an increased amount of retardant being put on the ground. The one question I have out of the statement that was made for these goals and edicts made by this commission is when it says you need to figure out how to procure and transfer authority of aircraft to private, federal, and state, and even city resources for that use. So military aircraft and and other things, I'm sure, that could be retrofitted. And it says, for firefighting use and other authorities. So if these airplanes aren't being used for firefighting, what are those other authorities that they're being used for? Is there a limit to what they can be used for? Can a city or a state get two C-130s, retrofit them for surveillance and other options, and then when there's not wildfires, can they fly them for other reasons above their city or through the forest or anything like that? That opens up a lot of doors because you could say, yes, it's a military aircraft, but now it's a municipal aircraft, so there's not the same checks and balances when it comes to a military-grade aircraft with all sorts of sensor equipment flying over residential and forested areas. Again, this isn't fully determined. That's why this council is out there to determine these things. But you have to then think that one of the co-chairs is the Department of National Security and FEMA, and only two on the commission have wildfire background. You kind of have to wonder, what direction are they going to take this in? The other disappointing thing, and I'm going to get into what came out of this meeting here just shortly, but there's not a lot of talk in this commission about retention of firefighters, not a lot of talk about boots on the ground, and not a lot of talk about compensation, benefits, and wages. The Secretary of the Interior does discuss the mental health program that came out of the Bureau of Land Management for this, but it's, it's skewed because they got like $236 million or something along those lines out of the infrastructure bill, and they're like, hey, we got $236 million, and it's for mental health of firefighters. But if you dig into it, it's like, no, it's less than 1% or maybe 1% of that is going towards the mental health side of things, and everything else is allocated elsewhere. That's why it's important to read these bills and everything like that, because the headlines don't match the story. So out of this meeting, they took quotes from the, the chairs or the co-chairs, and the Secretary of the Interior, Secretary Holland, basically gave an entire speech about climate change and how firefighters are at risk because of climate change, and they're on the front of this all so on and so forth, and there wasn't a lot of meat or bulk to her statement about actual wildland fire. That was a little disappointing because it was basically just a political statement. I understand she is an appointed bureaucrat, and those are the types of things that she has to do. I just was hoping for a little bit more detail, I guess, on what's coming and what we can expect when it comes to wildland fire, instead of just quite broad statements of climate change is here, it's getting worse, fire seasons are worse than ever, which 
This year, that's not the case. And just a broad-based political statement. But I'm not too shocked by that. That just is what it is. Now, Secretary Vilsack of the Department of Agriculture, again, started his statement with, wildland firefighters are on the forefront of climate change. They're firefighting, devastating wildfires, and they're becoming more severe. Again, I follow this industry very closely, and you could argue against that. You could take 20-year data and say, hey, yeah, 20, 30, 40-year data, fires have been getting bigger, and so on and so forth. But if you zoom out 120 years, that's not the case. And then if you zoom way into this year, that's not the case either. People will say, well, look at the acreage. And then my argument would be, well, you have Alaska, okay? They don't burn every year, but when they do, it usually burns big, and that was this year. And so you got a massive amount of acreage coming out of Alaska. And then you had a very large fire down in New Mexico that would have never even started if the prescribed burns and the pile burn didn't escape from the forests down there after they were lit. And I'm not putting blame on those people. I know these sorts of things happen. I talk about it all the time. But I just have, I have to kind of raise an eyebrow when people take Alaska's acreage and acreage from escaped pile burns and say, look how bad it all is. It's like, oh, okay, no, I understand. There are big fires. They are burning more intensely because we had poor fuels management for generations. But when you cherry pick those items as someone who understands what it all means, I'm going to look at you sideways and really wonder, have you looked at it carefully or are you making a headline? Again, just some things to think about. Vilsack continued in his statement saying, the creation of this commission and its forthcoming recommendations to prevent, address, and recover from wildfires are critical to protecting communities and firefighters. Then they moved on to the FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, and she said, the truth is, urban, suburban, and rural communities, especially across the western United States, are being forced to rapidly adapt to the reality of year-round wildfires. Again, that's not, it's not 100% true. It's raining in the Pacific Northwest right now. The fires in Montana and Idaho have really suppressed due to moisture and cold weather. And it looks like the season is winding down quite a bit. She continued saying, The issue is only compounded by development across the wildland-urban interface. Now more than ever, we need the right professionals, perspectives, and innovative ideas to solve these complex problems. With the support provided through the administration and the infrastructure law, and the incredible commitment from the United States Department of Agriculture, Department of Interior, state, tribal, and non-federal partners, so private entities, non-governmental organizations, we are confident that the commission can achieve our goal in helping threatened communities become more resilient to wildfires. They go on to say that current wildfires are outpacing what the current resources are that are available, and that just shows that everything's getting worse when it comes to fire growth and things like that. What they don't address, which I wish they would have, is 
one, yes, you can say that that statement's true, but you have to tag on at the end, the Forest Service has lost 40% of its workforce in the last two and a half years. So of course, if you have an emergency, it's going to outpace your workforce when almost half of them have left. That's not discussed. And like I said earlier, they don't discuss retention. They don't discuss retirement benefits and wages. It's all about drones, aircraft, too many people are living in the woods now. We need to discuss how to mitigate all of those things. And again, this is all coming from a commission that only has two people who have been wildland firefighters in the past. Very, very curious where this is going to go, what the recommendations are going to be, and how they're going to move forward with all of this. My prediction is it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers. Maybe not by the political class, but by folks in the industry who look at these recommendations, who understand the environment, and think to themselves, what did they put out here? Of course, we can hope that that doesn't happen, and they have very down-to-earth, productive, helpful recommendations that can be put into use, but I just see this as a vehicle for a push for technology-based platforms that may be overutilized. And I'm not against all of that. I've discussed before and have an article coming out on this on the Substack about the nighttime aerial operations that are happening out in California. I was always a big fan of that because it's technology being used correctly. We know that helicopters can fly at night, airplanes can fly at night especially with some military night vision and other types of products that allow you to fly in these complex environments and still conduct operations safely. This is something that hasn't been done for a while, and it's now starting to become more prevalent. And I'm for that because water drops and retardant drops are more effective at night simply because the sun's not out, there's not that radiant heating, RHs are naturally higher at night anyway, and you're just getting more of a positive effect from all of these operations. So I'm not against that sort of thing. What I would hate to see, and maybe this is a controversial statement, but what I would hate to see is hundreds of blimps the size of three football fields now flying over all of our national forests. That just doesn't seem right to me, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Should we, should we have these things flying around? Should we constantly have government drones flying around? For wildfires, but, quote, for other authorities as well. And I'm not just making that up. That is in the law. All stuff to think about. It's all very interesting. I'm a big fan of wildfire aviation. Like I've said before, my favorite thing to do was to run multiple ships at a time, wander deep into the fire perimeter, and just work an edge. So I am a fan of all of these things. I'm just curious. There's just not a lot. And I know it's just their first meeting, and it is seven months late. But it's just the... It's just the urge inside of me for more information. What are your recommendations going to be? I have your outline, and I can see it going in seven different directions. 
and I'm positive about some of those directions and I have concerns about others. So they'll meet again. They'll have some recommendations that they'll put out. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe by November, we'll see. And at that point in time, we'll come back and update everybody on if we're going to have drone motherships flying around our forests 24 hours a day. It's been busy over the last week when it comes to wildfires. A lot of them have started winding down, and that's no surprise. We're getting halfway through September. Temperatures are cooling. Relative humidity is increasing. And in some places, it might just be for this week, and we might be off to the races again a week from now. But in other places, it's starting to look like the seasons are changing. Nationwide, we are at a preparedness level four still, and we'll see where that goes in the next couple weeks. There were 97 new fires in the last 24 hours nationwide, 29 uncontained large fires. There's 24 type one and type two teams out. That's a lot. And there's 77 fires being managed for fire use and resource benefit. That is up substantially from the last couple weeks. And again, a lot of those are in Idaho and Montana and arguably is a political statement being made by these agencies when it comes to the state government's requests. But that's all hearsay at this point in time. But that's where most of these managed fires are. Starting up in the Pacific Northwest, they are at a PL4. They had 30 new fires in the last 24 hours. They had a lightning system come through. Between Oregon and Washington, it was something like 4,500 lightning strikes in the last 24 hours. They're still working the Cedar Creek Fire in the Willamette National Forest. Alaska Team 1 and Pacific Northwest Team 3 are jointly managing that incident. Both of those being Type 1 teams. The fire has ballooned to 92,596 acres. When I first reported this, it was 500 acres, and I remember saying they could probably catch this thing, but it's out there, and they'll probably just build a box around it, fire it off, and and call it good. And that kind of was the plan, but now at 92,000 acres, you can imagine what happened. It blew out of their box, and it's been off to the races ever since. They currently have 2,152 firefighters on this fire. That's a lot. And right now, it's kind of a prep and burn show. A lot of the divisions are still prepping roads, prepping ridge lines, all of that sort of thing. And they are looking to conduct aerial ignitions where possible. Again, using drone platforms and things like that. In the last 48 hours, relative humidities have come up. And there's been this heavy smoke inversion across the whole Willamette National Forest that has kind of hindered aircraft use and visibility on the fire. But again, that keeps activity down because it's, one, harder for the fire to breathe, and two, you're not getting that radiant heat 
from the sun that really makes things pick up. As of right now, that fire has cost $57.9 million. They also have the Double Creek. Again, this is a fire that really got big. Not a lot of folks are talking about it. Hey, to the folks who are like you're pronouncing our forest wrong, I'm trying my best. It's the Wallawa Whitman, not the Wallawa Whitman, but the Wallawa Whitman. I'm trying here, folks. That's being run by the Pacific Northwest Team 1 and the Southern Area Blue Team. Again, both Type 1 teams. And they are also managing the Sturgill, the Nebo, and the Goat Mountain fires. The Double Creek is 157,088 acres. 759 people on those fires. The whole complex, if you combine all the fires, is about 200,000 acres. A massive chunk. But again, they had received some scattered precipitation in the last 48 hours. Some parts of the fire got dumped on, and some parts of the fire got a sprinkle. So, wide range of what actually happened when it comes to the amount of moisture that came down. And on those fires, it's mostly mop-up at this point in time. I believe Division Romeo is still chunking in line to sure up one edge of this fire. But with the moisture coming in, they've been able to aggressively start to put this thing to bed. The combined cost of all of those fires is sitting around $20 million. Then there was this Bolt Creek fire near Skycomish, Washington. That's being run by Northwest Team 8. The town was evacuated. It ran almost 10,000 acres, 9,400 acres. There's 431 people on it, and the cost is $3.1 million. Again, it's subsided in activity a little bit. The big news story out of this fire, of course, was the evacuations and how fast this thing spread, but also these two hikers that filmed a video of them being trapped by this fire. Now, I don't want to crap on anybody's party, but I watched this video and I thought a few things. And then I had to remind myself that I have have experience of standing in the middle of a goddamn firestorm where most people would probably pass out and vomit at the same time. But after watching the video, I thought to myself, ah, it didn't really look like they're in that bad of a spot. They were a bunch of rock scree, they had places to move around, so on and so forth. But then I had to remind myself, these folks don't see fire every day, so it was probably pretty intense. Interesting video if you look at it. It's basically them documenting their hike out once they realized that this Bolt Creek fire was starting to burn around them. Other than that, in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of other fires that are getting wrapped up. Some are seeing some significant containment in the last couple days, and they have a couple managed fires that they're just letting burn up there. If we move on to Northern California, they had this mosquito fire that started in the Tahoe National Forest and then jumped to the American River and started burning in the El Dorado. California Team 5, which is a Type 1 team, is managing that incident. As of yesterday, it was 64,359 acres, and they have it already up to 20% contained. I'm guessing that's the heel of the fire. They've kind of wrapped around that. Massive resource allocation to this. There's 3,655 people on this fire. The fire camp has to be a nightmare. Like I said, it's burning on two forests. 
they have lost 64 structures on this fire. And earlier this week, the big fire growth that they saw, they had a spot fire that jumped the American River again, way out in front of the fire, and that thing took off fast. It grew very, very, very quickly up towards a community called Forest Hill. They threw a bunch at it, and in the last 24 hours, that activity has subsided a little bit. In just the short life of this fire, it's already up to $31.5 million. The other fires up in Northern California, there's the Barnes, the Mountain, the Forward Fire. These are all gaining containment very quickly. And then, of course, the Six Rivers Complex up in that steep, nasty ground near Happy Camp. They have now moved on to suppression repair, and most of the firefighting activities are done. Moving on, in the Northern Rockies, they're at a PL3. They only had four new fires in the last 24 hours. They are experiencing some cooler weather and... Some precip is predicted in the area, but there are still some fires burning around. You had the Bull Gin Complex. That's on the Kootenai National Forest. It's three fires combined, and it's ran by Northern Rockies Team 7. They're a Type 2 team. If I remember correctly, there's another team moving in, or maybe it's one of the other incidents where there's, they're swapping teams. The activity on that fire slowed quite a bit. It's 3,673 acres. There's 648 people on it, and really, they're watching it, but there's a lot of indirect line that's going in. They're building their box, and they're hoping that it stays within that box, and so far, the cost is $6.5 million. I might pronounce this wrong, but there's a fire up in the Bitterroot National Forest called the Blogget, B-L-O-D-G-E-T-T, Lake Fire. This has flown way under the radar. It's managed by Northern Rockies Team 1. It's a Type 1 team, which is shocking it's flown under the radar because this Type 1 team just kind of swooped in and took this over. They're also managing the Mill Lake Fire and the Big Creek Fire. Combined, about 4,500 acres. The containment estimate on these incidents, or at least one of them, is back in November, like November 15th. One of them's November 1st, and the other one's mid-October. So even though they got a type one team on this thing out in the Bitterroot, they're expecting these things to be skunking around for quite some time. 230 firefighters on those incidents and a combined cost of $750,000. But with a type one team, I expect to see that increase drastically. An incredible amount of managed fires in region one right now. Well over 30 and the list just keeps growing. And again, I'm not against that. It's a money saver. It's a resource saver. But it's not what the state government asked out of these agencies. So there's kind of some infighting happening there, I would assume. Or maybe not. Maybe behind the scenes, the Montana government's like, yo, you can let these things burn. That's fine. I just have to tell all of the constituents that I want to put all these things out. So there's some give and take there. I don't know which one it is, but there's something going on because there's... uh, divergence from what the talking points are. Some of the crews are looking to wind down up in Region 1 soon. I'm sure a couple of them will stay on a little bit longer because there will be some work, it seems, heading into October, unless they get a season ender and a big old winter storm hits early. Down in the Great Basin, they're at a PL3. Not a lot of new activity. They still have this moose fire in Salmon, Idaho, 
Now 130,000 acres, $80 million in cost. They still have 900 people on it. Great Basin Team 1 has taken over. They've rotated a couple teams in and out. And this is one of those fires where they will have people on it until it dumps snow. If you check out the Substack, I just put out an article yesterday about these cold weather fires and some experiences that I've had. And I've had quite a few. I've been on a lot of fires where it's below freezing and yet you still got to hike up on the line and there's still fire burning once the sun comes up. Also in the Great Basin is the Ross Fork Fire. That's up in the Sawtooth of Idaho. Last reported at 37,776 acres. They have containment up to 26%. Nearly 700 people on it. And again, they did receive some precipitation. The mornings, someone hit me up and said that they woke up to 28 degrees up there where they were camping. So the mornings are very, very cold. And then other than that, there's just a handful of managed fires in the Great Basin that they're letting burn for that resource benefit. As we get to the tail end here, Southern California, not a lot of new activity as well. You have these Yosemite Park fires that are still burning. California Team 10, which is a Type 2 team, is on those. About 11,000 acres combined with those fires, $4.5 million dollars in combined cost, and they've allocated about 220 people to those incidents. I've seen some footage come out of these. It looks like a cool little roll. Seems like they're eating okay. They're in the wilderness, so they're not setting up these giant fire camps that you'll see, you know, in Santa Barbara and near Tahoe and these other places. It's kind of a smaller footprint type of deal, and they're doing what they can to corral these things in. Then there's the Fairview Fire, about 29,000 acres. This thing's starting to get wrapped up, 69% contained, and about $30 million in cost. All of that being said, they still almost have 1,400 firefighters on it, which is shocking, but not really for a California fire. And then lastly, if you move to the Rocky Mountains and even a little further east, Nebraska had this smoky fire the other day. They had red flags. A ton of wind came through. A fire started. It ripped 3,000 acres. The footage of this is pretty incredible. They have a good handle on it now, but it caught a ton of people off guard. And then down in Wyoming, they have the Washakie fire. That's 2,500 acres, and they have bumped that up to 70% containment. Lastly, in Canada, up in British Columbia, they have the Battleship Mountain Fire that has evacuated the town of Hudson's Hope up there. Very active wildfire, timber, very steep ground, and it looks like they're going to have some fire weather pushing into the week. Alberta looks like they have some extreme fire weather headed into the weekend, which I was fairly surprised to see that, but it's, there's this trough that's pushing across our, the United States Pacific Northwest. But above that, it's allowing for a drier air mass to travel across Canada. While the United States gets colder weather and some wetter days, Canada is kind of getting this short little blast of some drier and warmer weather while the system pushes through. All in all, that is the national 
operational update, what's going on in Canada. There's kind of a lull internationally when it comes to wildfire. There's a couple fires that happened out in Africa. Argentina saw some incidents. We're waiting for Australia's fire season to really start ripping off. And we'll see what happens when that all does. I'll take this time to thank our paid Substack subscribers. Everything we do is supported through those subscriptions. If you want to support what we do, get workouts, articles. Our Wednesday show is only on our Substack. Just for our paid subscribers, if you go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on subscribe. It's just $6. It supports everything we do, including firefighter donations. To those in need, some folks who had been injured, We've helped out quite a few this year already, some smoke jumpers, some individuals who cancer diagnosed to them, some vehicle accidents that took place. And when these things come up and are brought to our attention, we do what we can to help out from those donations. So again, thank you to everybody out there who is a paid subscriber to our Substack. It is the only source of funding that we have. We are ad-free And we couldn't do it without you. Lastly on the show, we are going to discuss this new platform that's being launched out of this company in Montana. As I said before, I don't have any association with this company. They have reached out to me in the past asking to utilize footage that I've posted, but that's the extent of any sort of our relationship goes. But all that being said, after reading what they got going on, hey, if they want me to be some sort of ambassador for this, I'm a big fan of stock compensation and other options like that. I'm a big fan of Montana, where they're from. I've lived there for quite a bit of my life. And it seems like an all-around good company. Now, I don't know the total ins and outs of their organization, but I know a little bit about it. And it seems like a very stand-up professional organization. So I'll just punch through this article that was put out on their product. The name of the company is Bridger Aerospace. I'm sure a lot of you out there in the fire industry have heard of them. And they're launching an aerial data tool for wildfires. It's basically an imagery and intelligence technology that relies on private aircraft, crowdsourcing, and even the U.S. Forest Service to provide tactical data to first responders and residents. The article says Bridger Aerospace Group has launched an aerial imagery intelligence and crowdsourcing tool. This is the latest example of how government technology is helping public safety agencies deal with one of the main environmental threats facing the United States. The Montana-based company says its new FireTrack product is a commercial multi-spectrum aerial imagery service and consumer application. It can provide real-time data on wildfires, according to the company's statement. The data for this comes from 
high-resolution imagery gained from aerial fire mapping platforms. Bridger Aerospace have what the statement called multi-spectrum precision survey payloads with advanced precision mapping and multi-image orthophoto capabilities. So they're all of their aircraft, or it seems some of their aircraft have a large array of sensors on them, and they are utilizing that while they fly over wildfires, kind of consolidating that data and adding it to this platform that they're putting out. Sensors and onboard software combine the aerial images into visual data about wildfires that can be used by fire and emergency workers, along with map providers, news outlets, research institutions, and other organizations. The idea for public agencies is to use all of that data to craft tactical responses to wildfires. FireTrack uses those aircraft images, crowdsourced information, and other data including from the U.S. Forest Service and other groups, to alert users to fire danger. People can use the app to access evacuation maps, road restrictions, weather and other air quality data, and an array of other information. Quote, I founded Bridger Aerospace with a mission to fight wildfires with specialized modern aircraft and advanced technologies to save lives, property, and habitat, said Tim Sheehy, I believe that's how you pronounce it, S-H-E-E-H-Y, who is the founder and CEO of Bridger Aerospace. FireTrack is the next step toward our goal of providing real-time critical wildfire intelligence and situational awareness to all who need it. She, once a Navy SEAL, founded the company back in 2014. It employs more than 120 people and operates a fleet of 24 aircraft privately. In early August... Bridger said it would merge with Jack Creek Investment Group, a special purpose acquisition company, and become a publicly traded entity. Okay, all very interesting. On the investment side of things, they're using something called a SPAC. Short, it's S-P-A-C. And this is a recently created vehicle that allows entities like an investment group to raise money. And then they can acquire companies or partner with companies and through that SPAC, as it's known as, they can then take a private company public on the stock market very quickly and a lot more streamlined than traditional ways. Traditional ways, you'd have to do something called like a reverse merger or you'd have to get listed on a smaller exchange and then wait for certain criteria to be met before you could uplist, they call it. And it was really a long runway to get your company publicly listed on the stock market. Now, a lot of these SPAC companies have been used in the last two or three years. A lot of electric car companies have utilized this. Some social media platforms have utilized this vehicle to take their company's public, and it seems like they have found a partner that has already formed a SPAC to take their company public. It's a very big move. It's a great way to raise money if you're looking to raise money for your company. It's also a great way to divest some of your ownership interest to reap some of the benefits of what you've created and it provides a lot more of a public face and a public platform and just plain old publicity for your company. 
Now, there already are other fire aviation companies that are publicly traded. Some of these helicopter companies and others have a presence on the stock market. A couple of them, if you invested when they first went public, you'd be doing pretty well for yourself. Of course, since then, if you follow the global markets and just the market in general, things are relatively down. A lot of technology companies are down 60-70%. If you look at commodity prices, iron ore and copper, respectively, down 60 and 30% in the last year. So, of course, with the market environment, things go up and down. But I found it very fascinating that what I would consider, when it comes to the market, a smaller company that's decided to take the company public. Now, like I've said before, I've had experience in the past with all of these sorts of things, especially when it comes to pharmaceutical companies, drug trials, testing. I'm very literate when it comes to phase one, phase two, phase three type drug testing, what goes into that, timelines, how much it costs what it takes to raise money for company operations that are publicly traded, stock offerings, and things like that. In the off-season, over the years, I would just spend my time calling and talking to CEOs of companies worth anywhere between $600 million and $4.5 billion. And if you're professional and you own some of their stock, initially it was a surprise to me You can talk to these folks. Some companies are more lenient when it comes to that than others, but it has been an interest of mine in the past, so this struck me as a very interesting endeavor that Bridger Aerospace is undertaking. I personally have never used this application that they're talking about. I may now, I may go check it out to see what they have going on. I am very aware of their aviation platforms that are being used. They have a bunch of scoopers. They were heavily utilized in Montana this year. And when it comes to aerial operations, it seems like they got that pretty well dialed in. I'm going to follow this up because this sort of thing, like I said, interests me. I'd like to see the process play out. Again, I want to see what kind of valuation they're going to put on themselves, see what kind of corporate structure they're going to build, And quite honestly, I'll throw it out there. If if they want some sort of wildfire ambassador, I'm willing to have those conversations. Seems like a great opportunity. And again, it just fits into what one of my interests are. I'm always and will always be interested and active in wildfire. If you've listened to some of my earlier podcasts, you know my background and what how my life went and I worked in some music studios in Chicago, spent a little bit of time in LA, down in Phoenix, working in the music industry, and also, I've always been fascinated with corporate structure and the investment world. I wouldn't be surprised to see more products like this pop up, but it seems like they kind of have a head start on the industry, and it should be very interesting to see where they take it. On that note, hey, thanks for listening to the show Check out our Wednesday show on Substack. Just for paid subscribers, $6 is all it is. That supports everything we do. If you're out in the field, it's getting colder. 
grab that puffy coat, do a couple push-ups in the morning to get the blood flowing. I know some of you out there just eat cold oatmeal out of a packet. Maybe you should consider heating it up. Might make you feel a little bit better in the morning. I know it takes time, seconds or minutes, minutes or hours. And we do have timelines we got to hold. We can't be like the Wildfire Mitigation Commission that can be seven months late before their first meeting. We got to hit the line when the time comes. But on that note, reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while. See how they're doing. Stretch, hydrate. When you roll into the off-season, don't just scarf down a bunch of pizza and cheeseburgers because quality calories still count. Make sure to get those workouts in. Keep the machine running smoothly. Get the rest that you need. But when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh. Uh. Uh.